0: Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans and thus America itself. I'm your host, Chris Stevenson. Join me for our 12-part podcast series, Religion and the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens, grappling with the complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released every Monday between now and the end of the year on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Evangelicals have been active and influential in all parts of the American experience. For this interview, the term evangelical is defined as believers who, one, have had a born-again experience resulting in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, two, accept the full authority of the Bible in matters of faith and conduct of life, and three, are committed to spreading the gospel by bearing public witness to their faith. Their impact on U.S. foreign policy is large, fascinating, and full of experiences with direct bearing on our politics today. This is especially true as Americans look abroad to the Middle East and China, two places where one, the United States has been actively engaged in the last several decades, and two, the culture is wrapped in powerful religious ideas very foreign to Christianity in general and evangelicalism in particular. Today, we are grateful to have Professor Lauren Turek with us to discuss her book, To Bring the Good News to All Nations, Evangelical Influence on Human Rights and U.S. Foreign Relations. The case studies in her book detail the extent of evangelical influence on American foreign policy from the late 1970s through the 1990s. Ms. Turek is an assistant professor of history at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. Lauren earned her doctorate in history from the University of Virginia in 2015 and holds a degree in museum studies from New York University. She is a specialist in U.S. diplomatic history and American religious history and is currently at work on a second book project which will explore congressional debates over U.S. foreign aid in the 20th century. Turek has also developed exhibitions at a number of museums, historic sites, and cultural institutions. Lauren, thank you for being with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you today.
0: Lauren, would you explain what was happening in the 1960s for evangelicals that will help frame your book's scope for us?
1: Sure. I'm actually going to telescope out a little more than that and just talk about what the world was looking like for Christians in that era and and the dynamics of world politics at the time. So one of the things that we see if we think about the 1960s what's happening in the world is there's a process of decolonization that's going on where countries that were formerly under uh, colonial rule by by colonial powers are gaining their independence many have gained independence by the 60s and that is leading to a number of people in the these new countries to seek to Uh, question a lot of the assumptions about colonialism to to kind of push for kind of anti-colonial nationalist movements. And because of the important role that religious groups, especially Protestant groups, had played in missionary work in the early days of imperialism and colonialism, going back to the 19th century, there was a significant critique coming from people living in throughout the Global South about missionary work, critiques that missionary work was sort of inherently culturally imperialist. And what we saw in many Western countries, including the United States among mainline Protestants was a reaction to that, a concern that they did not want to be contributing to a culturally imperialist model. And so there were changes in the way that the missionary uh, movement approached its goals. So what we started to see where a lot of mainline Protestants started to call people back from the mission fields or to redefine their approach to missions, to think about how they might do more to solve the problems of poverty or instability abroad uh, to take a more kind of social justice orientation to their work. Evangelicals watching this happen were quite concerned about the redefinition of missionary work to have this broader uh, focus and what they saw as a potential diminishing of the emphasis on spreading the gospel because evangelicals really firmly believed that They had a responsibility to go out, share the gospel with the entire world uh, in order to make all, uh, you know, spread the news to all of the people of the world. They were concerned that without active missionary work, without an active focus on evangelism, the folks throughout the Global South would not have the opportunity to hear the gospel. They would be missing out on this and Christians would be kind of forfeiting this key role that they were playing So what we start to see in the 1960s is evangelicals, especially in the late 1960s, evangelicals grow increasingly critical of these moves by mainline Protestants, right, like at at Uppsala, and they start to articulate new plans for themselves about how they can do more missionary work, how they can do more um, active missionary engagement in parts of the world where they, not that they weren't active before, but that they could expand their their involvement there so that they could spread the gospel. So what we see is this flourishing of, of concern, of anxiety about the world around them and about these, what they say are, you know, two billion souls who have not been saved or two billion people who have not heard the gospel. So there's a real desire to go out and reach the unreached.
0: Great. And so this, this in the book you define or you don't, I think there was a, an official term called mission crisis that's what you just described correct
1: yes yeah so folks there were a number of missiologists uh like a a man named barrett who who really wrote extensively about this fear this anxiety that there was this crisis of missions that people were leaving the mission fields and that evangelicals had to do something or all these people would go unsaved they would they would not have heard the good news uh, of you know christianity um, and there's, it, it's hard to sort of overstate just how much anxiety this caused for these religious groups. I mean, Billy Graham is looking at a world that seems to be beset by all sorts of crisis. If we think about what's happening, especially in the late 1960s, there are, there's social unrest throughout the world. There are protests in many countries. There's emerging economic challenges. There's a lot of, eventually in the 70s, a lot of political scandals. He's at least looking out on a world that seems really um, to be affected by a kind of spiritual malaise, but also just sort of a dangerous world. And he's worried that, you know, evangelicals really need to take action. They need to they need to get involved. They need to do something, because first of all, this is an opportunity, right? When people are feeling that there's a sort of spiritual malaise, they might be very receptive to hearing the gospel, but also because he feels a responsibility to all of these people that they that they hear it. And so this helps us understand a series of conferences that they start to organize in the late 1960s into the 1970s to try to bring evangelicals from around the world together to come up with some sort of strategy and not a sort of top down one, but a, a collective strategy for how they can go out and effectively reach these 2 billion people.
0: Right. So let's, let's move right into the 1970s. Uh, can you give us the why and how of the Lausanne movement, which you're referring to here, uh, begun in the mid-1970s, and what it meant to evangelicals and their interactions with the world?
1: Sure. So in 1974, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association held a huge congress in Lausanne, Switzerland. They brought together uh, 2,400 evangelicals and some other folks from throughout the world. And it was a really unique event. First of all, what they had done was they made sure not just to invite evangelicals from the United States or Europe, they, they made a conscious effort to invite a wide number of delegates from countries in the global south. So it was, first of all, one of the most diverse gatherings that they had had. And they didn't just invite those delegates to listen, they invited some of these delegates to share papers and to talk about evangelistic strategy. And the kind of tagline of the conference was, let the earth hear his voice, right? So in other words, this is the plan, we're going to try to come up with some way to share the gospel with everybody. And the papers that the uh, invited speakers generated, they're circulated before the Congress so that Everybody has a chance to read them and comment on them. There are response papers that are generated. So the Congress is really a a big working session and there are a number of working groups put in place. They also draft the Lausanne Covenant, which is a document that most, most of the evangelicals who attended sign. And it's a statement, essentially a statement of mission or a statement of purpose going forward to lay out how evangelicals are going to evangelize the world. And I just wanna stress, evangelicals are, again, it's not a top-down movement. There are lots of different denominations that fall into evangelicalism and non-denominational groups and parachurch groups. So it's not as though there's one person directing all of this. Uh, And so a lot of the activity that's happening is to provide some kind of structure for groups that work really independently. Um, But the Lausanne Covenant, defines a goal for world evangelization and it's pretty broad in how it talks about uh, its its objectives and there's these sets of debates that emerge out of the congress that reflect some of those challenges of the 1960s and 1970s the challenges of decolonization that i was just mentioning there are a couple um evangelical theologians uh, who come from countries in Latin America who share papers that are deeply critical of the Western missionary model. Folks like C. Rene Padilla and others who are coming um, from Latin America who are looking at the situation in their countries and they're saying, there's no way that we can hope to reach people or hope to share the gospel with people if they are suffering from poverty, if they are suffering from inequality, if they are suffering from threats to their Uh, to their livelihood. So we need to break man's slavery in the world, Padilla says, if we're going to be able to evangelize people. And he basically calls for a social justice orientation for evangelicals. And many of the Western, the US, the English, Uh, evangelicals who respond to Padilla's calls for, he actually calls for a moratorium on Western missions. He says we should stop this entirely and let people from these countries focus on these problems and focus on evangelizing themselves. And the response that he gets from evangelicals in the United States, they acknowledge the problem of cultural imperialism, but there is this anxiety that we see where evangelicals are so worried that so many of these countries in the Global South don't have any Christians, nearby who could be local evangelists and so they say well we can't put a moratorium on missions because then we really won't be able to spread the gospel and they they kind of hit back against Padilla and others like him and they suggest that well we really just need to focus on evangelism evangelism has to be our primary goal and it's not that Padilla doesn't want evangelism it's just he wants local evangelism and so that idea starts to kind of germinate for evangelicals and In the covenant, both both evangelism and social action are discussed, but it is very clear in the covenant that the primary focus is going to be on evangelism. So there's a kind of uh, discussion of social justice. It's very clear that they acknowledge that they need to deal with some of these social problems, but the evangelism is still at the forefront. But those debates continue. And so in the years and decades after that first Congress in Lausanne, there are a number of follow-up meetings and also small regional meetings where groups in the global south talk about ways in which they can encourage what they call sort of indigenous evangelism or local evangelism. There are working groups in the United States who are trying to figure out ways to uh, share the gospel message in a way that is uh, perhaps less uh culturally insensitive or is more responsive to the individual cultures of each place that they're looking to and this is where we start to see uh, efforts to create radio programming that is in a given language that really reflects the cultural dynamics of a particular place so the the outcome of this movement is first of all a, a considerable amount more communication between evangelicals throughout the world. There's a, a kind of network that emerges where they're talking with each other more, where they're trying to be a little bit more coordinated with their efforts, even though they're still pretty dispersed, and where they're very aware of what's going on in these other countries. This doesn't mean that there's no debate or that they don't you know, disagree about how they should go about evangelizing, but it is a, a really signal moment that brings all of these evangelicals together and gives them a sense of focus or a sense of purpose to this unified mission.
0: Well, Lauren, with that great understanding of the Lausanne Covenant, um, let's move into uh, the chapter where you deal with religious freedom and foreign policy. Let's see how this all played out. So you noted that in the 1970s, as evangelicals surveyed the world, within the the framework of the Great Commission, which is Jesus' invitation to go and baptize all people, communist and Muslim states stood out as hostile to evangelism, in part because evangelicals define religious freedom as, and I'm quoting here from the book, the freedom to practice and propagate religion in accordance with the will of God. Can you elaborate, Lauren, on the ramifications of that definition?
1: Absolutely. So, it's really, this goes back to that definition of of what an evangelical is, and The, the sort of third point that you highlighted a point that comes from an excellent sociologist of religion, Mark Shibley, was the, um, the really core belief that doing, being an evangelical involves evangelism. (laughs) It involves sharing your faith. And that is a core part of both practice and belief. And so for evangelicals, if they cannot share their faith, they feel that they are not being able to fully practice their religion, that their beliefs are being imposed upon. And this really is highlighted for evangelicals, in particular in the situation unfolding in the Soviet Union. Evangelicals had long been concerned about religious freedom in the Soviet Union. Uh, There's, of course, lots of rhetoric about godless communism and all of this. But in terms of actual looking at the actual policies, they're very concerned about religious practitioners who were facing state persecution for practicing their beliefs. And this goes back uh, quite a ways. What changes in the 1970s is that evangelicals begin to organize more effectively as a political lobby to push the U.S. government to take particular actions to try to sanction the Soviet Union and pressure it to change its policies. The Soviet Union ostensibly had a kind of religious freedom part of its constitution but obviously was not actually that wasn't actually in practice what they see in communist countries in particular is not only can um people from not so first of all in in the soviet union it's not that you couldn't belong to a church right there were baptist churches but they had to be registered with the state in order to be acceptable and obviously in the process of registering with the state they had to comply with certain sets of rules and one of the things that they weren't allowed to do not only were they not allowed to evangelize others they could not educate their children uh, in in their faith the way that they wanted to so there was this real um, sense from evangelicals especially those who were practicing in unregistered churches who were trying to practice clandestinely so they would not be Kind of under the observation of the state, they were already uh, doing something kind of dangerous by practicing clandestinely, by educating their children, by trying to evangelize. And evangelicals in the United States reading stories or hearing from folks who faced arrest or psychiatric treatments for psychiatric treatments or assaults or long prison sentences for doing what evangelicals in the West viewed as a kind of core aspect of their practice of faith was very alarming to them. And so in the 1970s, as other religious groups like Jewish groups in the United States were similarly very attentive to religious persecution in the Soviet Union, there's a tremendous amount of persecution against Jewish uh, Soviet Jews, and they were very effective at using the 1974 Trade Act in Congress. So they, they add an amendment to that Trade Act, the Jackson-Bannock Amendment, which created a, a kind of barrier to trade essentially, that it said if, if uh, countries are not going to allow kind of free emigration for their people so that Jews can leave and that sort of thing, we're not going to trade with those countries. Or we're not gonna extend most favor of nation status at any rate. So US evangelicals looking at the success of Jewish interest groups in, first of all, highlighting the threat to their ability to you know, survive in, this, uh, in the communist society. They, they're inspired by that in many ways. And they say, we should be advocating more forcefully for our co-religionists. And so we start to see similar um, advocacy in Congress starting in the mid 1970s. They bring up the cases of religious persecution that they hear about. They highlight specific cases of religious prisoners of evangelical, Baptist, uh, Pentecostal prisoners in Soviet labor camps. They call for their release. They really advocate for people in the Soviet Union to have more access to Bibles, to have more access to practice their faith freely. And it is a really effective way to organize because there's a general sense within the Congress. There was a lot of support for uh, Soviet Jews. There then is a lot of support for Soviet Christians. This is a very effective way to make an argument that the Soviet Union is restricting not just religious practice, but human rights in their country at a time when there's bipartisan support for pushing back against that and so it becomes a way for this lobby to grow more powerful more politically effective at this time and so they're able to actually get some prisoners released it uh, they are able to push to deny trade to certain countries they are able to um, kind of keep this in the minds of policymakers where if they're meeting with their soviet counterparts they're asking about religious prisoners so that it's never kind of far from people's minds. Um, So that's how it, that's how it kind of develops in the 70s where they take this concern about religious practice and religious freedom and their anxiety that in some of these countries are not able to spread the gospel and these people are still unreached and they can actually translate that into actually testifying before Congress, actually writing lots of letters to Congress people and really organizing very effectively around this concern.
0: Let's dive a little bit deeper here. So uh, when the National Security Council briefed President Reagan, so now we're moving into the 80s, uh, before the Geneva Summit in November 1985, they highlighted uh, the extraordinary burgeoning of religion in the USSR as by far the most dramatic development in Soviet descent in recent years. And that by the time Reagan assumed the presidency in 1981, evangelicals had a defined... Foreign policy agenda, which you spoke about here, that underscored religious freedom. So, can you give us an example or two of how this, how this played out during the Reagan presidency?
1: Sure. So, there's there's actually a few ways that this plays out. I mean, this. So, the Siberian Seven, of course, had been. They were a group of two families of Pentecostals who had uh, kind of taken refuge in the U.S. Embassy in the late 1970s uh, because they were not you know, they were facing persecution in the Soviet Union. Um, They, there had not been much, uh, they had not been able to be gotten out safely during the Carter administration. And of course, Reagan was very sympathetic to their plight, uh, very concerned about their situation. And so when Reagan met with his counterparts in the Soviet Union, when uh, Reagan's, you know, advisors were meeting with their counterparts with the ambassadors were meeting the Siberian seven came up quite often it came up quite often in the in the records of their conversations just really pushing the Soviets to let these folks emigrate um, the Siberian seven is are in some ways a kind of a different case from what many evangelicals were sort of hoping for with the Soviet Union because they do, essentially want to to leave and, and come uh, so they can practice their faith freely. And they do get released during Reagan's presidency. It, Reagan pursues this in a kind of quiet diplomacy approach. right? He's not publicizing his activities. He's now outwardly criticizing the Soviet Union. He keeps things very quiet as he works the kind of back channels to help support their release. Now, evangelical activists A lot of them did not necessarily want to open the floodgates to have evangelicals in a situation where they're all going to emigrate from the Soviet Union. What many evangelicals in the United States and the Soviet Union actually want is for policy changes in the Soviet Union so that people who live there can stay and then evangelize their brethren. So the, so the Siberian 7 is actually a kind of interesting case. It attracted a lot of attention. It certainly brought a national attention to the problem of religious persecution in the Soviet Union. But what many evangelicals were hoping to see was actually ways to use the levers of foreign policy to pressure the Soviet Union to change its own internal policies, which is challenging because, of course, the Soviet Union is a sovereign nation. It really reacted very strongly against the suggestion that it should be changing its internal policies just because the United States didn't like them. These are Cold War adversaries. That was not something they were keen on. But that's really a lot of what evangelicals were hoping to see. Um, And some of the folks who are able to emigrate to the United States kind of... uh, say, like, well, I would like to be able to continue to evangelize my countrymen. It's it's uh, that's the kind of desire that exists. So there's that. So so evangelicals see Reagan as a potential champion for their goals, their you know, he does get the Siberian 7 released. He is very attentive to the problem of religious persecution in the Soviet Union. He speaks about the Soviet Union and its religious repression. So they're certainly happy that he is promoting that particular vision and really embracing the idea of religious liberty or religious freedom as a core human right. That doesn't mean that they always align with the Reagan administration on policy. For example, one of the things that the Reagan administration was really eager to do in in its time in office was to try to chip away at some of the uh, sort of relationships between the Soviet Union and its uh, client states or sort of friendly allied states in in the Eastern Bloc. And it put in place a policy of differentiation to do that, where they would be more receptive to countries that might be willing to have a more independent foreign policy from the Soviet Union. And Romania is a really good example. But Romania was also a country that was deeply repressive for evangelicals. There are reams of testimony that evangelicals were giving in Congress about how brutally repressive the, the um, conditions were, that they were, you know, they had all sorts of lurid stories about how they were ripping up Bibles and using the pages as toilet paper and all of this, just really sort of uh, very, uh, you know, the kind of imagery that would really grab people in Congress and, and uh, you know they talk about churches being bulldozed. So there's just this, this sort of imagery there that really grabs people and gets people upset. And meanwhile, the Reagan administration sees the Romanian government as one that is perhaps going to exercise a bit of independence from the Soviet Union. And so they're eager to extend normalized trading relations with them. And evangelicals are saying, absolutely not. <laughs> we don't want you to do that. They're abusing the kind of uh, they're abusing evangelicals. They're abusing people's right to practice their religion, and so they end up really pushing hard against uh, Reagan policies there. So Reagan can be an ally, but it's it's kind of a, 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 it's sometimes mixed, right? They will push back if they think that he is not pursuing their general goal of pushing for 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 religious freedom in all of these countries that they see as as hostile to their faith.
0: We are talking with professor Lauren Turek about her book to bring the good news to all nations, evangelical influence on human rights and U S foreign relations, which details the extent of evangelical influence on American foreign policy from the late 1970s through the 1990s. Lauren, In July of 1990, as the Soviet Union is starting to unravel, Mikhail Gorbachev reached out to Western NGOs, including some U.S. religious organizations, for advice on making the transition to democracy, as well as for aid in fostering civil society in Russia. Can you tell us about this Project Christian Bridge, what it was, what it did, including its successes and failures?
1: Sure. So, um... There's this uh, in the in the 90s, as uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, as the situation in the Soviet Union is starting to change, and it's becoming increasingly apparent that they're at a transition moment. Gorbachev invites a group of um, a group of evangelicals to come to kind of meet with with. Um, leaders in moscow um they actually come they they it's a whole group of evangelicals they include the sort of executive director of the national association of evangelicals one of the editors of christianity today um one of the leaders from the national religious broadcasters and then a bunch of folks who work on slavic missionary work or who are doing kind of radio evangelism so it's this really kind of high level group of evangelicals who go they're very well connected um and they they go because they get they get invited to come to moscow it seems like this sort of exciting um opportunity to go and they meet with these soviet leaders i have pictures of them kind of meeting with leaders of the kgb meeting with uh, meeting with Mikhail Gorbachev and talking about how the kind of religious values that they promote could potentially contribute to shoring up some aspects of Soviet civil society. Um, they are, the evangelicals who go are very wary. I mean, they don't know exactly what's going to happen. They are not sure. There has been this kind of re- a bit of religious opening in the Soviet Union. They're not sure if that's, Kind of window that's been opened is going to snap shut but they go because this might be an opportunity and what ends up happening is they form this kind of ad hoc group called project christian bridge um, which is an effort essentially to kind of advise the soviet union on how they can bring these christian values these moral principles to bear on improving soviet society and so what they do is they You know they're they've got all these participants they go back home um, and they try to figure out ways that they can, you know, help in the in a post Soviet context uh, to educate people in the military to educate the media and so on and so forth, um, to try to help folks uh, in those areas. Um, There their main focus of course is evangelism. They they believe that the best way to you know create civil society there is to build up the number of Christians. And so what we see are a lot of efforts back in the United States as part of Project Christian Bridge to develop suggestions for how increased religious freedom in the Soviet Union could actually help with this project of um with this project of of building civil society. So there's lots of lots of ways to try to provide aid to the what is by then the kind of former Soviet Union to the Commonwealth of Independent States. Um, they also start to coordinate these visits from Russian officials to US churches. So what we see are, for example, some of the big um, leaders of the army in the former Soviet Union traveling to the United States, traveling actually to Tennessee to meet with leaders in the Pentecostal Church, uh, the Church of God, to talk to them about you know, moral values and instilling moral values in, in their people and so on and so forth, which is just really surprising, right? The idea that the, the Russian military wants to find ways to instill kind of Christian Christian ideals among its soldiers uh, and, and maybe its officers in the Russian army. And they have all these talks. And so if you look, there are some newspaper articles from um, Columbia, Tennessee, highlighting the, the visit of these Russian military officers to learn about U.S. Christian or U.S. evangelical. Values, U.S. evangelical practices, um, uh, and there's a real push to ensure a, a new laws in the in the, the Commonwealth of Independent States in Russia to have more religious freedom. So that what we end up seeing in the aftermath of this is that there's actually this enormous inflow of religious groups from the United States to to Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's this it just and it's not just evangelicals there's an influx of you know all sorts of different faiths that come in because there's this new openness that has emerged now the reaction to this in russia after a few years the you know the orthodox church in russia sees this as an inherently threatening to their own uh hold on power right their own grasp of the populace so they're very um, concerned that all of these religious groups coming in, preaching on street corners, opening institutions in their country, that that's going to detract from their ability to maintain their hold on their believers. Um, but uh, what we see is there is this kind of short period of a few years where all of these religious groups are coming in and trying to evangelize in Russia. Eventually the russian orthodox church is able to clamp down on some of the freedoms that had been opened up to allow for this but there continued to be evangelical engagement uh through through groups like project christian bridge and on the and others that were working there to ensure kind of evangelical presence in in russia
0: lauren just illuminating so fascinating uh and this history is is fairly recent uh, yes. but you have two other case studies i want to get to the time remaining. The, the second case study is uh, Guatemala. Um, can you tell us about the February 4, 1976 earthquake that struck that country and what happened religiously to them as a result?
1: Absolutely. So on February 4, 1976, there's this tremendous, devastating earthquake that hits in Guatemala. It causes widespread devastation throughout, uh, you know, from from kind of radiating out throughout the area i mean the description of homes that have been destroyed people um, in incredibly injured or you know folks who die it there's just a tremendous amount of devastation and there's of course uh, an immediate response from religious groups in general in the united states to go and provide aid to the people who are suffering in guatemala to help them rebuild to help them Recover from this devastating event. There was, in fact, so much aid from religious groups that um, members of the uh, presidential administration were, were starting to direct folks directly to those different groups. And it's again, it's Catholic groups, Christian groups, or sorry, Protestant groups, evangelical groups, et, et cetera. So there's just this this outpouring. Now there were already a number of evangelical groups that had been involved in Guatemala. They're they had been doing missionary work there since the uh, you know. for for a very long time, but the earthquake and the desire to go help after the earthquake was also this tremendous opportunity for evangelism. And so what we see is that some smaller, non-denominational evangelical churches from the United States go into Guatemala after the earthquake to kind of set up shop, to help folks recover, but also to build some churches. And one of the churches that goes down is a church from California called Gospel Outreach Church and they are uh they actually started as a kind of hippie church in the in this sort of uh days of the jesus movement in the 70s but they had become a more kind of conservative traditional evangelical church uh by 1976 and they actually um they're the man who goes down and it's a reverend carlos ramirez he goes down to guatemala Uh, with a group of folks from the gospel outreach church they go to help they they go to help people rebuild from this earthquake and they start a new church there called el verbo the church of the word and while they're there they start to build a following Um, and there have been a lot of um, theologians and religious studies scholars who have talked about the ways in which um, in the aftermath of the earthquake the message of evangelical Christianity, which has kind of apocalyptic overtones, which talks about, um, which talks about and contextualizes events like an earthquake, really effectively. That that they were able to bring people in in part because of the shock of the earthquake. That their uh, ideas and ideology became really appealing, and so they build this following in Guatemala City. And one of the people who comes to join their church is a man named Rios Montt, all right, Efrain Rios Montt, and he had been a, well, he was a general in the Guatemalan army. He had, at one point, run for president, but because of corruption in the government, he was not able to, he uh, he felt that he had been unfairly treated in the election, that he um, had been blocked, and so he had uh, kind of spent some time in Spain and, and had come back, and he was, he was In need of some spiritual help. And so he finds the teachings of the gospel church very, of El Verbo, very appealing. So he becomes a member of this church. Now, fast forward a few years, and he's working at the church. He's actually a director of their Christian day school. He's, he's, you know, doing his administrative tasks. And he hears on the radio that there has been a coup the government has been overthrown by a group a young a group of young military men a military um a sort of military coup and he is being called to the palace to the national palace to come because he's been named as one of the new leaders of government by these these young military folks so he consults with his with Carlos Ramirez with the other um, reverence at the church uh, and he actually gets their blessing. They kind of, they, you know, there's some news articles or, or news coverage from the time and they say they kind of laid hands on him, they prayed and they came to the view that he had been chosen by God to lead Guatemala into a new kind of, become to become a kind of a model of Christianity in this area. And so he goes and although he was only one of three people that the, that the coup plotters had kind of put in charge. There were two other military leaders. So they have this military junta. Uh, He very quickly marginalizes the other two military leaders and declares himself uh, the sole leader of Guatemala within a short period. And this is all taking place in in early 1982. And he makes all of these speeches on the radio where he talks about how he's going to turn Guatemala to God. Guatemala, of course, is a nominally Catholic country at this time. It's you know, uh, it's not as though there had not been a lot of missionary work there already, but he says he's going to turn the country to God, by which he means he's going to uh, support in particular evangelicals and the particular type of Protestant Christianity that he practices. What actually happens is he, he kind of vows to end corruption and do all of that, and he does make some changes in the urban areas. So the kind of urban Guatemalans, the middle and upper class, they they do sort of see him as, as helping them. But he identifies communist insurgents, quote unquote, communist insurgents in rural areas as a threat, not only to his leadership, but as a threat to his desire to spread uh, his Christian vision throughout his country, right? Because he sees in, in the same way that that other evangelicals do, communism as kind of inherently, uh, threatening to religious freedom and religious practice. So he unleashes uh, the army on indigenous people, the Mayans and other indigenous groups who are living in the highlands in Guatemala um, in this in this sort of deeply devastating counterinsurgency campaign where they're literally uh, putting people into strategic hamlets and model villages, what they call them, model villages, but they're essentially strategic hamlets to... Um, break up communities or put them in these kind of refugee camps and then they, they kill or disappear just thousands and thousands of people. They, they essentially engage in genocide, but there's that language and rhetoric of religious freedom. And so he also at the same time is trying to cultivate a close relationship with the Reagan administration. He's playing on the language of human rights. He's saying, we're going to bring Christianity. We're going to promote an end to corruption. Uh, and he's asking for U.S. aid to do that. He's asking in particular for military aid to help him put down this this insurgency, what he terms an insurgency. He invites evangelical leaders from the United States down to come and tour the country, to meet with him, to pray with him, to see some of these strategic hamlets. And they pledge a tremendous amount of aid, aid to him. Um, Pat Robertson goes on the 700 Club and calls for... U.S. citizens, U.S. watchers of his show to not only call their congresspeople and push them to provide military aid to this regime, but to support private um, fundraising that they're doing to try to send whatever material they can to help him in his goals. And the Reagan administration encounters a lot of pushback, right? There are members of Congress who are watching what's happening in Guatemala. They're hearing from secular human rights organizations saying that this is a, a really devastating human rights situation, people are being killed. And they're unwilling to provide that aid. And so we end up in this situation where evangelicals are pushing very hard to have that aid extended. The Reagan administration is trying to find ways to work around uh, congressional resistance to this. And eventually, uh, they are able to offer the sale of some helicopter parts. But evangelicals, uh, Re- Smart is not necessarily keen on that. He wants he wants the aid to be provided to him, evangelicals help him secure the helicopter parts that he needs from sources in Canada and Israel. So they are able to actually materially help him with his efforts. Now, he's later ousted in another coup. A lot of the military men were not super thrilled that he uh, was uh, kind of emphasizing the religious dynamics. He, He was constantly using religious rhetoric in his speeches they i him in part because they're frustrated with that and with the incredible influence that his church members have his church advisors have on his leadership but it's this remarkable um moment where we see the confluence of um, evangelical concern u.s evangelical engagement with this region u.s evangelical concern about spreading the gospel and some of this communist and anti-communist rhetoric that we're seeing so he's It's a sort of tremendously interesting case study.
0: Uh, No, I agree. Very interesting. And before we leave it and go to South Africa and apartheid, I want to to note from your book, I learned that before the earthquake, uh, Guatemala had a seven percent Protestant population, and by 1982, so six years later, they had flipped it. They were then twenty-two percent Protestant and as you say it they just were just grew from there. Okay, right. That's what you said. So um, just from the missionary aspect also very very fascinating. Let let's move to South African apartheid. So, can you explain how mainline Protestant religious leaders and evangelical religious leaders differed in their approach to apartheid in South Africa, which was a major US foreign policy issue in the 80s and 90s? Sure.
1: So This is when I think about the case studies that I chose, one of the things that I was trying to do was look at the wide array of ways in which evangelicals might have influenced policy. So in the case of the Soviet Union, we see them being very effective at using the language of religious liberty to to get particular legislation and particular policies. We see an on the ground effectiveness in Guatemala and congressional resistance in in that case. South Africa, there's a tremendous variation in terms of not just evangelical perspective in the United States about the problem of apartheid, but evangelical perspective in South Africa about what the response should be to apartheid. And then, of course, there is the kind of what we see, the perspective from mainline Protestants and and many Catholics, where there's a huge amount of religious based activism to try to end apartheid in the country of South Africa, right? So there's so there's a lot of Protestant activism on that, both in the United States and in South Africa. And in fact, in South Africa, it's, it's you know, folks like um, Desmond Tutu um, and, and other sort of really well-known religious leaders, they tend to be like Anglican or other mainline Protestant churches. So they are advocating for an end to the apartheid regime and all of the um, you know, racist policies that that entailed, and the tremendous amounts of human rights abuses, which were just um, increasing sort of regularly throughout this throughout the 70s and 80s. So it was a seriously bad situation, um, plus, of course, this very racist regime. Now, evangelicals in the United States, when interviewed, many of them, particularly very conservative ones, would say, that they were deeply opposed to the racist uh, policies of the apartheid regime so they would say we are opposed to apartheid but they were worried that if the apartheid regime was removed that the new leadership that would come in might come from folks from the african national congress which they viewed as a communist organization or at least inspired you know or, or in potentially influenced by communism so they were worried that what would happen would be with the removal of apartheid leaders in an immediate way, ANC leaders would come in and maybe South Africa would fall to communism. And if that happened, it would take what they saw as one of the most Christian countries in on the continent of Africa, and maybe create a situation where religious freedom would be restricted. So that was the perception. Now there was a lot of debate, right? There were, there were whole groups of Southern Baptists in the Southern Baptist Convention who were calling for a much more Uh, kind of progressive response to apartheid. They were much more supportive of movements that mainline Protestants and Catholics and secular organizations in the United States were advocating for at the time, which is they wanted the United States to disinvest from South Africa. They wanted them to sanction the government in order to put pressure on the apartheid regime to, uh, to end apartheid. Those groups in the Southern Baptist were marginalized, though, because there were these more powerful conservative voices who pushed them out of positions of leadership and really advocated for a different approach. And so what they were calling for was rather than uh, bringing justice to South Africa, rather than an immediate end to apartheid, they were calling for a kind of gradualism, and they were very opposed to the efforts to impose sanctions or to disinvest. Um, or to divest, uh, to have corporations divest. And a lot of it is rooted in this language of religious liberty and this fear that they have that a a communist government was going to come in and that would be the end of that. And so they're playing on those anxieties and fears. And so when there is a movement in Congress to pass legislation, to pass this comprehensive anti-apartheid act that would involve uh, some of these foreign policy levers applied to the apartheid government, evangelicals in the united states along with some conservative evangelicals from south africa who have a a kind of who are also worried about communism um they mount this campaign to resist the passage of this legislation and they go on tv and they write letters and they do all of this stuff to try to make their case and we see um um You know quite a bit of an effort to bring some of these more conservative south african evangelicals to speak about what they see as the potential threats of an immediate end to an apartheid and a kind of call for a gradual end now they are not successful in blocking the comprehensive anti-apartheid act and in fact advocates in congress who support the comprehensive um, anti-apartheid act are able to ensure that it gets enforced even though the reagan administration does not approve of it tries to tries to sort of veto it and everything so they they are not successful in this case unlike in some of the other cases i talk about what's important though is that there is this focus on again preventing preventing a certain government change in that country and there isn't as much of a focus on justice and it is only later that we see in south africa south african evangelicals feeling a sense that they have really messed up, that not focusing on justice, that by focusing only on their desire to continue to evangelize and and so on and so forth, that they have really done harm. And so there's an effort to engage in a kind of reconciliation process uh, there. And so we see some South African evangelicals who play a key role in that reconciliation process later in the 1990s. U.S. evangelicals Their thoughts about apartheid evolve after the end of apartheid, but it's, but they were certainly, again, not all of them, right? There's a lot of difference of opinion, but, but the core group that are advocating against the the comprehensive anti-apartheid act, they are slower to kind of have their views about the situation evolve over time.
0: I want to uh, quote from your book about these South African evangelicals looking back on their approach, as you just brought it up. It was very moving, uh, or profound, I should say, what they said, and I'm quoting here. In South Africa, I'm quoting from them, in South Africa we hear more and more that no price is too high to pay for our religious liberty. The fact is that genocide is too high, high a price, and no one, not even evangelicals, not even for the highest ideals, have the right to take measures that might destroy millions of innocent noncombatants. So I think that's uh, related to what you just said.
1: Absolutely, and it also, again, it just it highlights this ongoing disjuncture between a social justice orientation and this the primacy of evangelism, right? So this is a kind of ongoing discussion and also the definitions of human rights. When we think of human rights, is it just religious liberty or is it a broader search for justice?
0: Right. Lauren, you end the book with this statement, evangelicals' impact on U.S. foreign relations is a testament to the power of religiously inspired individuals united in a common cause to shape national politics as well as the international order. Do you want to add anything to that here as we close?
1: I think we're still seeing today a lot of the rhetoric and I- ideas of this group uh from the sort of rhetoric of the 1970s and 1980s still shaping u.s foreign policy in insignificant ways even today so this, this was a grassroots movement they were they managed to build a large global network and they were able to make significant interventions into u.s policy and so you know in terms of thinking broadly about how how grassroots grassroots groups can be very influential. I think sometimes we have this perception that only only kind of elites or the foreign policymakers are the ones shaping policy and grassroots activism doesn't matter, but it does, right? And we can, we can have a, a range of perspectives and views about whether we think that these policies that these particular groups put in place were beneficial or not. Uh, I won't give my personal opinion, but we can certainly have a range of opinions about that. But it is very clear that religious belief united this group, their set of beliefs united this group, and made them or contributed to their ability to organize very effectively and and shape the world around them in really profound ways.
0: We have been talking with Professor Lauren Turek about her book, To Bring the Good News to All Nations, Evangelical Influence on Human Rights and U.S. Foreign Relations. Thank you, Lauren, so much for being with us. It has been very enlightening and I believe helpful to me and all listeners.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful to get to talk to you.
0: The podcast series Religion in the American Experience is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes are released each Monday starting October 19th, 2020 through the end of the year on Podbean under Story of American Religion, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify.